Uh, there we go. Ooh, okay, here we go. Let's pray and let's go. 17 Sundays after, 17th Sunday of Pentecost, 16 after Trinity. Our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. 2 Timothy 1.10. Almighty everlasting God, comfort of the sorrowful and strength of the weary, may the prayers of all that call upon thee in any trouble come into thy presence, that they may rejoice that in their necessity thy mercy has been with them. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, just a couple, uh, a couple of things. Hey, will you, uh, this group I know is a little more, uh, maybe you're just a little more you know, in tune or maybe willing to go a little bit the extra mile. Will you all please do this? I mean, this is just like, this is a silly, we should probably, you know, well, I was gonna say cancel church and I'll do this together, but that would be one step too far. However, you know, this is just, to do this thing with Thrivent is just free money. You don't have to have any Thrivent product or be a Thrivent member. All you have to do is just write a check out and fill this in, and you can do it for anybody in your household who's older than 16, 16 and older, and they match it at 50%. It goes on your giving, you can take it off your taxes. The school gets a 50% pop. This is just a complete no-brainer for us. So um, if you could grab one of these at the door, the door and do this, it takes five minutes, but it's a huge, you know, the, the school could you know, get 30 or 40 or $50,000 from this. I don't know what the limit is. I asked and they didn't know that there was one. So, I mean, that's a whole position somewhere in the school. It's just such a good thing. If you could do that, that would be nice. Second, um, hey, we just kind of start sending these around. You just hand them back. You don't have to hand them out necessarily. You wanna, will you do that for me? Um, um, second thing, you know, uh, we've got, uh, we're, there's the fix-up day on Saturday at the Parsonage on Burning Trail on, at where Pastor Allen was. Um, if a bunch of you guys can, can come out, uh, and I don't, I don't, I mean that, you know, not a genderless guys, men and women can come out and help. You know, we either need to do it or we need to pay to have it done. But, you know, a good work day saves the church, you know, several thousand dollars if we were going to hire things in. That's true for the ones we have here and also uh, in other parts of the property. I mean, you can't calculate the good that uh, those work days on Wednesday nights in the school did. I mean, that was tens of thousands of dollars of work that was done by people who have skills and a little bit of time. So if you can, you know, if you can come around and call a friend and bring a friend along, and if, you know, if 30 or 40 people descend on that place, you get so much done in such a short period of time. It's nine to three, lunch will be provided, life will be good. Um, please, please do that. Uh, what else, any questions just about anything? Anything, anything off kilter, everything all right? Um, does anybody need, we're, we're doing the number three one. Does anybody need this? Vicar, can you do this? As he's given you that, I'll, uh, I'll repent of, you know, stealing my mission statement from a scotch bottle. But you know what? If you can't do better than, you know, somebody else. I even like the little graphics, you know, the little grass things there. So, um, <laughs> listen, if, uh, if, if people who bottle scotch can figure out that what they're trying to create is community, certainly the church should be able to figure that out, right? I mean, uh, touch it, feel the earth, form a bond with this place and the people who live here. That's what the church is trying to do. One of many people bound to this place by the love of the church and all that, and this is the big thing, all that it embodies. That's what we're talking about, how Christ embodies God and Christ embodies the church. That's where we're going. So, um, anyway, there you go. 
Uh, I'm trying to push you, as you recall, toward four things. That Christ is present. That when Christ is present here, he embodies God. That when he's here, he embodies us. And that that prompts us to do things that we never, ever could do. And so, um, whether you knew it or not, you thought, uh, this is page three now, you thought that Napoleon Dynamite was all about voting for Pedro. How wrong you were, you see. Napoleon Dynamite is about uh, community. It's about the church. See, everything is really about the church at the end of the day. This is including Napoleon, you see. So just read the first, uh, Napoleon Dynamite was a humorous but touching critique of, now here it is, the inevitable loneliness and meaninglessness of individualism. You'll need to go back and watch it again. So what, what that was all about was that if you're alone, your life is, is um, sad to miserable. There's nothing worse than being alone and unloved. That's what we all fear, you see. When stripped of the context of genuine community. Isn't that interesting? So people who bottle scotch can get it and people who make movies can get it. So certainly the church should be able to get it, shouldn't they? Shouldn't the church be able to get that? Its message is consistent with Christian moral anthropology that human beings are not intended to fly solo. For this reason, a man leaves his parents and goes to his wife. Not, not intended to fly solo, but are made to live in a community marked by the vulnerability and sacrifice of love. You know, this is another way of appealing for a mature community. I was thinking this morning, it's, it's, just, it's always so interesting to be at the supper, you know, all the stuff we bring there and all the stuff we leave behind. And I was thinking again um, how the difference between us isn't whether or not we're troubled. You know, we could go around the room and everybody's got a trouble to share. The difference between us is not whether or not we're troubled. The difference between us is whether we deal with the troubles that come in the way of Christ. And so, uh, you know, we aren't, the church isn't looking for perfect people and the school isn't looking for perfect students. Um, that's not what the church is about. The church is looking for everybody who's troubled. But what the church also does is raises into leadership those people who know how to, to deal or engage with, per, with troubles and persons who are troubled with maturity, Christian maturity. Those are the people that we're always encouraged to raise up. So it's not that, um, it's not that everybody's not invited. Everybody is invited. Everybody's in, nobody's out. That's how the church starts. But when you come in, it's something about leaving your old self behind. And that's been how the Gospels have played their way out. You remember the Pentecost season is the time when Jesus describes what it is that he wants in his church. You know, the first half of the church here describes what Jesus does uh, for us. And the second, uh, Jesus models for us what it is that he wants in his church. And what he wants is a church that's very large. It draws all sorts of people in. But it doesn't let people stay the way they are. And so the church in maturity uh, helps people deal with what troubles them in a new way. And that's why the Christian community can never look like the world, because it's meant to embody Christ. So uh, last time I sort of skipped down and I said there, there are some things that happen in the Trinity which uh, we can't even get a grip on. 
And there are some things that happen in the Trinity that reveal themselves in our midst. So we don't know what it is in our own lives to be independent. If you think you're independent, you are a liar. You're dependent on something. Everybody is dependent on something. That is one primary difference between God and us, that God is independent. He needs nothing. Another primary difference is that God is eternal. You and I have a start and a finish, five deaths in the congregation this week, of either in our congregation or people we love in, in, in the congregation. You know, death is the great, birth and death, you know, I think two, death, two, two births and five deaths. That is the great revelation that we are not eternal, we're temporal. So God is completely other in that way. Um, God is everywhere and we're in one place at one time. And God doesn't change, but we change all the time. So see, we can't really, we talked last time about the life of the Trinity and everything that's going on in the Trinity. And there are some things about the Trinity we just can't understand. That's why when people ask difficult questions about predestination, you know, that happens in the life of the Trinity outside time. And you and I can't understand that because we are not eternal, you know, and we're not dependent, or, or not independent. God is eternal and independent. That's why we can't figure that out. He's just completely other. However, when God makes his community, when God makes the church, there are some ways that he delivers himself to us, or there are some gifts he gives that makes community. Um, he does teach us to know things and helps us grow into wisdom. He does teach us to be good and to deal kindly with each other. He is just and honest. That was the gospel for today. And so we learn to be just and honest. But the one I wanted to start with today is divine love. And that brings us then um, to, uh, I'm sort of partway through three, sort of going towards four. Um, it was St. Augustine who, I'm on the first page, you know, I'm not sure, between the last two bullet points. I'm not sure exactly where I am, but it's in there somewhere. It was St. Augustine who, when people talked about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what does that mean? Well, there are three persons with three personalities. Uh, so if you have two parents and a child in your family, you have three persons and you have three distinct personalities. Yeah, okay. So you have three, but that doesn't really get it. Well, but they're one. They're the same stuff. They're the same essence. They're all divine. They're all eternal. They're all independent. And yet, they all give themselves to each other. So what would it be like in the church if we're all independent, or we think we are, at least we're individuals, but we're all giving ourselves to each other? What would that look like? It was St. Augustine who said, you know, um, there's... Uh, in any relationship, there's the one who loves, the one who is loved, and the love between them. And that was Augustine's uh, explanation of the Holy Trinity. The Father is the one who loves, the Son is the one who is loved, and the Holy Spirit is the love between them. Now certainly that's love more than an emotion, uh, is actually a person. You know, this is, this is everything, every way we talk about the Trinity, it's difficult for us to express it because we don't have analogies, we don't have words, we, we, we can only sort of brush up against it. Poetry is better 
than uh, prose for discussing these sorts of things. But it was St. Augustine, and I gave you just a little bit uh, in the, if you look on your sheet, the stuff that looks, the part of the reading that looks serious on the next, on the next page. You know, the part that says chapter 8 and chapter 10. You know, obviously what God wants to do is give us a glimpse of the divine life, and someday he wants to draw us back up into the divine life. So this is the uh, back of the first page. So it starts with chapter 8. Does anybody need this? Everybody got this? Raise your hand if you need it. I'll promise you I'll bring it to you. The, the vicar will bring it. Anybody need it? No? You're just not brave enough to say? Let no one say, I do not know what I am to love. Let him love his brother. Okay, now move farther down. Embrace the love. I'm one, two, three, four, five, six lines down at the period. Embrace the love that is God. Through love, embrace God. He is the very love that joins together in holy bond all good angels and all God's service. See that? We sort of flip from God being love to God being the bond that joins us together. Uniting them and us, see, with angels and archangels. So we're united with the angels. It's the angels, the saints, and us united to one another, all in subjection, point number two, to him. The more cleansed we are from the swelling of pride, the more we are filled with love. Isn't that interesting? Love and pride are opposites because pride demands its own way and love uh, could never demand its own way. And is not whoever is filled with love filled with God? So one of the things that should mark the community, and remember this is where we're going, what should mark the community? Love should mark the community. But you know what? Um, that sounds a bit trite. And if you ask people what the church is about, many people would say love but not have a clue what they're talking about. Or uh, the, the opposite can be true too. I, I can tell you that as many churches, I've known as many churches to be marked by hatred as by love. And why is that? It's because they've completely lost touch with the divine life and they've completely engaged pride, which listens to no one else. Opposite that is the divine life, um, which is described then in chapter 10. You can read this a little bit later, but four lines down is Augustine's classic definition. Love itself is only a kind of life which unites together or tries to unite two beings, the lover and the beloved. Okay? And uh, so there's the Father who loves the Son, and how he loves him is the Holy Spirit. And so uh, there's all sorts of, of ways that plays itself out in our own life. Now the problem is, and I think where the church maybe falls down is, you know, we'll, we'll talk about love and God is love and that sort of falls off our tongues. And if we're clever, you know, we can even get John 3.16 out, you know, God so loved the world. But there was that brilliant little Bonhoeffer quote about Chief Grace this morning where he said, it's always, uh, he says, grace that's still theoretical it isn't really grace. Love that's just a system for getting through life isn't really love. Love doesn't find, love is not love. When alters, when it alteration finds, no. Love is not love until it finds 
its target. Okay? And until that's, this is the, this is, you see how this is a parallel. Gosh, I just feel like I'm running a lot of things out that you may not see are connected, but in my head, I promise you, they're all connected. <laughs> you know, there is the way the Father loves the Son. It finds its object. There is the way you love other people. It finds its object. There was the prayer. No, it's the last reading of the Gospel for today where Jesus says, deny yourself for the sake of me and the Gospel. And what he's telling you there is that he is not the Gospel. He is the second person of the Trinity. The Gospel is when he, divine love, gets applied to somebody. Jesus is not the Gospel. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. The Gospel is when Jesus and his cross is applied to somebody directly. See, the point of all this is that love in, a in action, and that's how Bonhoeffer then is so clear. You see, we're all very good with theoretical love. We send our kids to the school because we want them to learn to love each other. Do they? You all come to church and you can talk about what love is. But do you love each other? And if you loved each other, what would it look like? You see, what would you be tolerant of and what would you be intolerant of? And does love mean you can just do whatever you want? And if anybody ever has a standard or says, don't do that, then that's unloving. Well, the Gospel reading for today makes a hash of that. So what needs to happen, I mean, we have this nonsensical American notion that, that um, you know, to love is to let people do whatever they want. This is just idiocy, you know? Love is to live within the divine life. Love is to express selflessly to another object, another person, the life which God intends for us, okay? So, I mean, what would that look like in reality? Spin your Bible open to John 8. See, see I think, you, I think I, you know, in Bonhoeffer's way, I think we're horribly good at this theoretically. You know, if we said, why do we have a school? We'd say, so we can make little Christians. Okay, how do we, what are the metrics for that? Are we a pretty good church? Yeah, we're a pretty good church. Uh, we love each other. Really? What are the metrics for that? You know, I don't want to press this too hard. On the other hand, love that is unapplied isn't love. So here it is in John 8. And, you know, we might as well go to the thing that is always easier, easiest for us to point, you know, fingers at. Sex is one of them, Okay. So we'll do a little bit of the negative and the positive of sex, which is one way that love can be expressed, but certainly there's other ways it can be expressed, and mercy first. So John 8, um, early, John, uh, John 8, verse 2, early in the morning Jesus came to the temple. So you've got to feel it's the start of the day, they're in the holy place, here's the new rabbi, he's a holy man, all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. So Jesus is having a run at him, you know. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And it's very important uh, to see as you go forward that nobody argues the point, okay? They caught her. She knows she's caught. Jesus doesn't say she wasn't caught. Nobody sort of argues the point. So already you have the sense that 
you know, there's right and wrong, okay? There's holy and unholy. There's in and out. There's clean and unclean. You're at the temple. All those categories have to kick in. So they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So they even strengthen it. You know, somebody walked in, her husband, somebody. She's been caught in the act. And you have to sort of, you have to imagine sort of Middle Eastern architecture. You know, they're in Jerusalem, so were they in the city or were they outside? Either way, village or city, things are very close. And um, when you start yelling at your wife, particularly about adultery, uh, the neighbors will hear. Uh, I mean, they just live right through the mud, you know, that's this thick. I mean, they're just next door. So this is a, this is a big hullabaloo, hullabaloo within the community. This is going to be a communal judgment now. You've, you've gathered up your witnesses. You've found your court. Um, the lawyers are there. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such. So they positioned themselves on the side of truth and justice. In the law, Moses says, stoner. Uh, what do you say? Okay. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against Jesus. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I, and I have no clue what that means, and I don't know anybody who does. So I, I just, it's just the strangest thing. And they continued to ask him, and he stood up and he said to them, <clears throat> Let him who is without sin among you in the community be the first one to throw a stone at her. So what are the possible interpretations of Jesus there? Got some ideas? What kind of Jesus is going on there? Could be a standardless Jesus. Maybe love is, you know, well, whatever you want, you can be doing. Or a little more sophisticated. I know that this would never happen to you, but um, I don't know if you've ever corrected your children uh, or had a little tussle with your spouse, and then you say, you know what really drives me crazy when you da-da-da-da-da, and then they say, well, you do too. Yeah, this has never happened to you, right? Yeah, no, I didn't think so. You know, some points you just have to pass by given the particular. But this is so Jesus is saying, well, you know, if, if, if well, you are too, that's one way to read him. You know, well, you are too. Uh, this is a horrible, this is, there's nothing that's more anti-absolution than that answer. You know, you, 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 you know, your kids ask you if you smoke dope, you know, and you read, as you, you know, when you get to your teenage years, you get all these, you get all these sort of advice about what people, you know, it's on the television. And you tell them you don't tell them you dodge, you know, what do you do? And then, you know, there's this rash of commercials lately, you've seen this where the, the dad is saying, you know, don't be stupid like me, which I suppose is another possibility of, 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 of going about things. But in, theologically, you know, in reality, um, it doesn't make any difference what you did or didn't do. Because how would your, how, how would your sins help your kids? Was that some, 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 some way open the door for them? You know, if you can find another person in the congregation this morning who, oh, I don't know, has embezzled, smoked dope, had sex outside marriage, or lied, then it's okay for you? I mean, that's the question. 
Is it just okay that we're just, is it, so Jesus, is this what Jesus is all about? It's just sort of, well, if you can find somebody else like that, you're no worse than anybody else in the community. Well, she gossips about me too. Or he lied about me too. Or you smoked dope when you were a kid, right? So what? There is this external objective standard. And you see what good this is, which is it frees you and everybody else it frees you to do the right thing. Even if your old man was a bum, you are free to do the right thing. Even if you, even if you were in a church where all the, all the elders were hypocrites and they, everybody fought all the time, you're free not to have that kind of a church. Even if somebody's mean to your kid at the school, you're free not to have your kid be mean back. That's where Jesus is going. You know, Jesus will not allow the community to be defined by its worst members or its worst behavior. Jesus defines the community according to the divine life. That is an external, objective standard by which the community is meant to live. And to appeal, well, you did it too, or that's the way we did it last time, or that's the way we've always done it has no status in the church. The only thing that has status is the divine life. So Jesus, although, you know, what the, that's, the, that's the one side. The other side is it can be used as a brilliant bit of law. Jesus says, you know, it, it, whoever hasn't done it, cast the first stone, right? <clears throat> and once more he bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest. And of course, in the Middle East, as they're telling the story, the eldest are the smartest. The eldest are the ones who get the point. You respect the elders. You look for guidance. You look to the elders for guidance. You sort of, it's the old men and the old women who show you the way. This is beginning with the most mature, you know, beginning with the ones who understood the community, beginning with the ones who figured out how ridiculous it was to try to destroy this woman and Jesus beginning with people who sort of figured out the game. Okay, that's how the story goes. And then this is the most brilliant bit, you know. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Okay, now you've got a lover and one who is loved. Okay, now watch what happens. Jesus loves the woman. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus looked up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Where is everybody? Where did everybody go? You know, he's trying to figure out if she understands what just happened. This is far beyond I saved your life and you didn't get stoned. There's something bigger going on. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Okay, now she's clever enough to sort of look around and say, no, nah, nobody has condemned me. But of course, that's not the biggest point. The biggest point is that she, that she escaped unstoned. That's not the biggest point. The biggest point is yet to come. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. So they're all gone. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. See? So they don't condemn her. And Jesus doesn't condemn her. He doesn't condone her. But he doesn't condemn her. Because the next words he speaks are absolution. 
Jesus doesn't say, sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want to do it, and that's all going to be fine, because this is a place where we just love everybody, and we're utterly standardless, and you can be clean or unclean, you can be sinful or not, it just doesn't matter, do whatever you want. That's not what he says. What he says is, everybody knows what's right and wrong, and you are just forgiven. How did that happen? It happens in three ways. The community lets her be. Jesus himself says, I don't condemn you. He absolves you. That's exactly what happens in absolution. You kneel down to say, and you say, I'm an idiot. This is what I've done this week. During the silence, you say, this is what, this is, this is what distracts me. This is what's horrible about me. And then Jesus says, I forgive you. This is, this is absolution going on, private absolution. Who condemns you? Well, they're not here. And then Jesus says, well, I don't condemn you. And then the most brilliant thing is, is he frees her to love herself again. So he loves her. And in loving her, she's able to love herself. Go, you're free. Go and sin no more. Go, you're free not to sin. These are the last words of private absolution. The last words of private absolution in the, in the, in the current agenda are, Go, you are free, which is exactly what he says here. I love you, and you are free to love yourself. I forgive you, and you're free to forgive yourself. I don't condone, but I do forgive, and you are free not to go commit adultery again. You are free to have your life back. You're free to be restored to the community. You're free to come back to the temple. You're free to go home. You're free to, re to be reconciled to your, to your family. You're free to be reconciled to your husband. All of that is going on when Jesus says, go and sin no more. So you have to understand both things, that love is not standardless. It loves in a particular way, but it also loves. And the difference is whether or not people have confessed. When she says, she doesn't put up the fight. She doesn't say, well, there's been some mistake, or it wasn't really what it seemed. You know, her very presence there she, she's broken and sort of run down. And, and when everybody leaves, she could leave too. She could take flight of Jesus. But she doesn't. Uh, she stays for the next good gift. So here's the thing. Love takes all sorts of forms, but one of the forms it takes is mercy. But mercy isn't applied without confession. It does come first. So Jesus is there. Jesus loves her. Jesus cares for her, and she's content to live within that mercy. Go and sin no more. She's content to live within that. That's very different than saying, well, will you, well, will you lie too? Will, will you gossip too? Will you smoke dope when you were a kid too? It's very different than that. It is utter objective standard that belongs to the community. You okay with that? Okay, now I press you even farther with the last thing um, about sex that's on your, um, uh, on the flip side of Napoleon Dynamite. You know, Lauren Winter's been around and is uh, beginning to get, really get some traction. She's uh, a young woman who wrote Girls Meet God, Girl Meets God, and, and um, many of you have read that and, and enjoyed that. She um, has just written a book called Real Sex, and I think she's um, gone to the faculty of Duke Divinity School now. But one of the very fascinating things, this is always why people who aren't Christian and become Christian are, are more valuable, because they see things in a different way. She was Jewish, you know, and came through uh, the liturgy into the church. 
And so she has to rethink her entire life, um, both, both um, well, in all ways, secular, religious, moral, the whole shot, okay? So one of the problems in the churches, and this is the thing that has probably set, you know, this makes me you know, grind my teeth at night, which is the church doesn't ever, well, I'm gonna slow down here just a little bit. The, um, one of the things that's extraordinarily important is that we explain why we do what we do, especially to kids, because otherwise we don't seem, we just seem capricious. We just seem to say what was the last thing that popped into our head. My suggestion to you is that if we read a little bit and learn a little bit about what the community is supposed to be like, we can tell our kids at least why we do what we do. So I give you, um, I give you an example. I, I pose the question to you, why shouldn't your kids be having sex? Okay, because here's the thing. Half the people that come to me um, are living together now. Um, you know, the, the uh, you know, sex before you graduate high school is very high. You know, it gets to the 60 and 70 percents by some studies. Um, and they're your kids and they're my kids, and, you know, why not? Well, this is a brilliant little thing, okay? So just kind of read along and think this through. Just think now, if this isn't love, the divine life in community directly applied, this is the sort of thing that we need to be doing as Christians, okay? A word like chastity can set our teeth on edge. It's one of those unabashedly churchy words. It is a word the church uses to call Christians to do something hard, something unpopular. Now you should be hearing today the gospel. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. You should be hearing this lesson, uh, the people saying, isn't there an in and isn't there an out? And Jesus says, well, there certainly is an in and an out. There certainly is a holy and an unholy. Let's try to figure out what that is. Okay, here you go. Chastity is one of the many Christian practices that are at odds with the dictates of our surrounding secular culture. That's why if the church tries to look like the world, it will always fail. It won't fail immediately and visibly. It'll just fail, you know, that it goes to ashes some days. The church is other. It challenges the movies we watch, the magazines we read, the songs we listen to. It runs counter to the way many of our Christian friends organize their lives. It's amazing the amount of people who come in of this 50% who are living together, and then they say, well, that's not quite the church. We should probably talk that through. And then every once in a while, about every fourth couple, one of them will say, you know, my friends told me we should just lie to you and tell you we weren't living together. But we didn't think that was quite right. And then we always do have a couple of, you know, one in ten who actually do lie to us, which always is really difficult, because you find out just about the time the invitations have been sent out. And that, you know, if there's anything that could put the pressure on a pastor, it's wedding invitations already sent out. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it strikes most secular folks as curious at best, strange, backwards, and repressed. And you know what? This is, um, this is a little like you know, having gay friends, too. You know, you're all or old enough to, you know, it's, it's happening younger and younger. I mean, kids in high school already, because kids identify themselves as gay earlier, kids in high school already have gay friends. For many of you, you, know, you kind of think back at when you were at college age, did you know some of your friends are gay? Now, if you're my age and you start to say, you, know, you start to realize you have gay friends in maybe the double digits. Uh, and, you know, there are people that you've known your whole life and you start to talk about them. And then what sort of happens there? If you start to reflect back, you say to yourself, well, 
they're really good people and I have a really long history and you know this is one that's often true and they're a lot nicer than church people <laughs> and oftentimes you know what yeah, yeah that's true uh, if I have my choice between picking people for dinner I you know yeah yeah so and then what happens is is that or, or or it's your daughter or son who moves in with their girlfriend and you say she's such a nice boy and we've always hoped that something would work out and this is just kind of a little glitch and yeah we you know I mean, and so what happens is, we, the two things will happen. We can get indignant if we have a gay son or daughter, we have a gay friend. We can be indignant, we can sort of never see him again because that's not the sort of people we are. The other thing we can do is we can um, act as if it just doesn't matter. Just doesn't matter. You know, it's my kid, so it just doesn't matter. It's my friend, so it doesn't matter. It's my friend, and he's a good guy. It's my friend, and she's wonderful. I would suggest to you that neither of those two are the answers that Jesus gave in John 8. What, John, what, what Jesus did was engage the person and stayed close while nevertheless pointing them to a better life. I would suggest to you that that should be the response of the church. That's what love and action would look like, okay? And it's very, it's very nice when somebody comes along and writes something as clever as this and also as clear, okay? So here you go. And you would never think to do it this way. You know, I talk about this text with everybody who comes in to get married, uh, and I never talked about it quite like this, but I will, in the, I never talked about it in terms of permission, but I will in the future. I only talked about it in terms of life of the, a life of the community, but this is even stronger than I've said it. What is chastity? One way of putting it is that chastity is doing sex in the body of Christ. Now, you all have to sort of lose your, like, sex is a bad thing, A, and sex is something we're not gonna talk about, B. Because sex is a great gift and it's one way that divine love is expressed among people. So first you have to just, you gotta like lose your heebies and your jeebies about talking about it, okay? And second is, um, you just have to get it in context. So chastity is doing sex in the body of Christ. Doing sex in a way, now get this, that befits the body of Christ, okay? That keeps you grounded and bounded in the community. I say, we never think about that. You think about sex with your spouse, or you think about people living together, or you think of kids having sex as between them. And the closest it gets is if you find out about it and you're a parent, and you know, that shames your family in some way, but you, or shames you within the larger community or culture. But you rarely think about it as a thing that befits. That would be my guess, okay? My guess is we think about it as a negative community experience, but not a positive community experience. Okay, think about this. Sex is, in Paul's image, and this is Ephesians chapter five, where he says, you know, just so you know, what, what Ephesians five says is, Ephesians five says that marriage is about Christ and the church, and Christ washes up the church, hallows it, forgives it, and brings it to himself as a new bride. Sex is, in Paul's image, a joining of your body to someone else's. Okay, fair enough, but this isn't going where you think it's going. In baptism, you have become Christ's body. And get this, and it is Christ's body, the church, that must give you permission to join his body to another body. So sex is between Jesus and you and your spouse with the permission of the church. And that's the reason we have weddings. Hmm, I must have missed that on those invitations that went out early. Yes. In Christian grammar, 
We have no right to sex. And I always, this is, this is always great when somebody who's sort of a newer Christian stumbles onto it, has to figure it out for themselves. I, I would put it stronger. As a Christian, you have no rights at all. There's no rights in the church, just in case you were curious. Because rights are by the law, and the law doesn't run the church. The gospel runs by the church. There are no rights in the church. There are only gifts. Sex is among the gifts, and so then you uh, use it the way the gift is given. In the Christian grammar, we have no right to sex. The place where the church, get this, confers that privilege on you is the wedding. wedding weddings grant us license to have sex with one other person. That's how Jesus loves the church. He has one church. He's monogamous. If you want to know why polygamy is wrong, it's because marriage reflects God and God has one church. The reason polygamy is wrong is because God is monogamous. Okay, him and his church. We have no right to sex. The, the place where the church confers that privilege on you is the wedding. Weddings grant us license to have sex with one person. Chastity, in other words, is a fact of the gospel life. Okay, so the answer that your kids can give is, um, it's, it's homecoming in a couple of weeks, wouldn't you have sex? And the answer is, no, I'm a Christian. Well, I'm a Christian too, because we live in Wheaton, so they're all Christians, and they're still having sex. <laughs> so, you know, well, I'm a Christian. Well, well, well then, well, it, my community hasn't told me I can have sex with you yet. Try that for your teenagers. You know, when, they're, when, they're, you know, when their boyfriend or girlfriend says, and it used to be you had to worry about boys, but girls are worse than boys now, and boys are weaker than girls. This is a horrible situation we're in, you know. It's, it's just, it is horrible. I mean, it's, girls are remarkably aggressive. You know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the bad things about the last 30 years is that women have become as bad as men, and girls have become as bad as boys with these sorts of things. Hmm. So, um, so the answer is, well, I'm a Christian. Well, I'm a Christian, too. Well, my community hasn't told me that I can have sex with you yet. However, if you'd like to have permission for that, we have dates available in May of, oh, you're still in high school, 2012, okay? So hold on, and we might have something for you then. But till then, <laughs> sit back, okay? See, weddings grant us license to have sex with one person. Chastity, in other words, is a fact of the gospel life. And I don't even know what she, if she knows what she's saying there, but if the gospel is the application of Jesus, chastity is the application of Jesus to my relationship with one other person, female, and in all its details, from doing the wash to getting the groceries to having sex. Okay, that's what it is. That is the, and, and, and what, what, at the end of this day, what I'm hoping you can do is work, what you should be able to do is work all the way down from the divine life through uh, Augustine and Napoleon Dynamite uh, to Jesus, to the gospel, to your life with your wife or husband. That's where I'm going. See, chastity is a fact of the gospel life. In the New Testament, sex beyond the boundaries of marriage the boundaries of communally granted sanction of sex is simply off limits. See, we have standards. Now, you know what? I don't break out in hives when half the people who, who come in to be married are, are living together. It's just what, I mean, if, if we, I mean, if we break out in hives every time a sinner walks in the door, you know, we're gonna have to have Benadryl drips, you know, instead of pew torches. <laughs> and it's just, you just, you know, it's just, you know, look around, you know, you're all icky, you're all sinful, that's the given. Icky is our demographic, these are the people we want. We don't say, you know, we're not saying to people, you know, if you've had sex, if you're gay, if you're icky, if you've stolen, if you've done something horrible, we don't want you around. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, why don't you stay here while everybody else goes? 
Maybe we can do some forgiveness, okay? To have sex outside those bounds is to commit an offense against the body, against the community. Why shouldn't your kid have sex? Jesus didn't give me permission yet. The, my parents didn't give me permission yet. The community didn't give me permission yet. You know, this is not who I am. And everything I do is tied to everything else I do, because that's what it means to be Christian. Why can't we teach kids to talk like that? You know, Then they're gonna do what they're gonna do, and then the church is gonna be there to clean up after them, and we shouldn't always do, <gasps> when in fact we clean up after them, because frankly, we're cleaning up after all of you too, and you're cleaning up after me, and that's the way the world works in the church, okay? Abstinence before marriage and fidelity within marriage, any other kind of sex, and this is really interesting, is embodied apostasy. I find it fascinating right now that everybody from you know, Lauren Winder to the Scotch bottle to Napoleon Dynamite is very interested in embodiment. I don't know how this, I didn't actually find these things beforehand, you know. It's just maybe I'm more sensitive to it now. But if you can be, now, now what you need to do is go home and you need to mash that all together. And you need to try to figure out what life in the community should be like. And my suggestion is if you give this just one iota of thought, is that what you'll figure out that in this community called the church, it is impossible for people to feel superior to other people, to gossip about other people, to point fingers at other people. And if they do, we, we should be able to sort of pat them on the shoulder and say, there, there, you know, just another 132 trips to the Holy Supper and maybe you'll grow out of that. Because that's not who we are and it's not what we're meant to be and you may not tolerate it. You may not tolerate any act of unlove, gossip, pointing figures, bullying people, any more than you would tolerate sex outside marriage. The thing is, is that's just easy. That's just easy to get at. The other things are harder to get at. And frankly, maybe we do the other things more, although I don't really know anymore. And maybe that's why we're, but Jesus isn't about that. Jesus is about a loving community that is bounded. And so while we have standards, we don't freak every time somebody does something wrong, but we also don't act as if it doesn't matter. It does matter. And so the ultimate act of love is confession, absolution, and freedom within the church. That's where we're meant to be. So I, don't, here, I mean, that was a lot, but you should be able to go home and sort of trace from the three members of the Trinity embodied in Christ, who takes the church as his own body, to icky sinners within the community, and how we deal with those in such a way that they can be forgiven and set free for life in the community. You should be able to do that, see? And that's a different way of looking at the world. All right, you know, that was a lot, uh, but see what you can do with that, and um, come back next week. We'll try another, uh, another way of, of, of things being embodied for us, okay? Let's pray and go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to say one more thing as I'm praying. I always it was Arthur Just who taught me uh, 
that pregnant brides get to wear a white dress. And that, you know, that's a sort of a staggering sort of thing when you think about it. But if you really believe John 8, and you really believe that woman was free, if you have a young woman who's pregnant, and you really believe, if you really believe in forgiveness, and if you really believe in, in a, if, you re if you really believe in restoration, if you really, really believe in community, then you believe that pregnant brides who have been to confession and absolution get to wear, wear a white dress. And you defend that. You know, think that all the way through. That's your exam question for next.